Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and Craig doesn't just write about the environment. He also writes about politics from time to time, as he did earlier this summer for Politico. He wrote all about the history of political conventions in Florida. And later this month, the Republicans were supposed to have their convention in Jacksonville. That's not going to happen anymore. The latest chapter in Florida's wacky history with political conventions. It's Florida, so of course things went wrong with just about every one of them. Mm -hmm. The first one was in 1968 when they nominated, uh, the Republicans met here and nominated Richard Nixon. There was, uh, you know, of course, unrest. 72 actually is kind of my favorite. Uh, That's the one where... Uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans held their conventions in Miami Beach. Imagine both. that these days. Well, no, I know. And it's, there's a reason why that's the last time they <laughs> held conventions in the same city. <laughs> um, uh, but the Democrats were broke, so they had to get the TV networks to pay for part of the price for holding the thing. And uh, and they, they were the ones that said, then you're going to have it in Miami Beach, because that way we can kill two birds in one stone. Yeah. We'll be setting up for the Republicans, and then we'll have you. And they screwed up the timing on nominating uh, McGovern because of a procedural thing. So his, his acceptance speech didn't go on until 2 a.m., which uh, one historian told me meant that he was in primetime only in Guam. Yeah, yeah. primo <laughs> then, TV slot there. Yeah, and then uh, the Republicans, the, they were so paranoid about what the Democrats were going to do, even though the Democrats basically lost in a record landslide mm-hmm. that year, that it led to them planning the, the uh, Watergate burglary. Most of that was planned at Nixon's Winter White House there in Key Biscayne, and the burglars were themselves from Miami. Uh, they had been, you know, Cubans who had been involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion. So, colossal miscalculation there. First three conventions held in the state were all in Miami Beach. In your Politico article about the 68 convention, of course, everyone remembers 68 for Chicago and the Democratic National yeah. Convention and all of the protesting and unrest that took place there. But you bring up an interesting character. Who is Claude Kirk? Who is Claude Kirk? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Claude Kirk may be the most Florida governor of the 20th century. <laughs> He's got a little competition from Sydney Katz, but he, Claude Kirk was the first Republican elected governor since Reconstruction, and his nicknames included Governor Gogo and Claudius Maximus. <laughs> um, he, uh, he showed up at his inauguration with a woman he would only identify as Madam X, uh, later turned out she was a German divorcee, and the two of them married and stayed married until the until the end of his life. But you know, at that point, to show up at your convention, it, show up at your inauguration with a woman that nobody's seen before and refused <laughs> to call her, people were like, "What?" Um, yeah, well, uh, he's the guy for whom the word "colorful" doesn't seem colorful enough. <laughs> let's put it that way. And so there was uh, there was rioting in Liberty City during the convention, and Kirk hustled over there to try and put a little oil on the water and. Um, promised to come back and meet with people the next day and then didn't show up, and it just led to even more racial unrest there. And then the last time they had a convention here in Florida was 2012 with mm-hmm. Tampa, where they actually got postponed because of a, a hurricane headed this way. And afterward, they, they had locked the place down so tightly because of security issues that even the strippers were complaining that the customers couldn't get to them. That, that, <laughs> that's when it gets bad, when the strippers start to complain, and you've yeah, got trouble exactly. on your hands. <laughs> Sarah Gerard is going to be our guest momentarily. She grew up in Pinellas County. That's the Tampa area, daughter of a county commissioner. She wrote an interesting collection of essays entitled The Sunshine State. 
For part of that, she volunteered at the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary. At one point, it was the largest nonprofit wild bird hospital and sanctuary in the United States. Craig, you've written about this and its founder, Ralph Heath. For folks not familiar with the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary, when we start talking to Sarah, catch people up to speed with where we'll begin. First time I wrote about uh, Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary was a story I did back in 1990 where I, I looked at all the wildlife rehab places in the Tampa Bay area and because there were there were a ton of them that was the big one that was it started in 1971 uh, when Ralph Heath jr the founder uh, found a, a wild cormorant with a broken wing and brought it home and cared for it you know it led to him at that point hardly anyone in the US had heard of wildlife rehab much less started earning a living at it mm-hmm. but by the time I talked to him in 1990 he was bringing in 15 to 20 birds a day to be cared for he had 16 paid employees. His budget was like 600000 a year. He wow. had thousands of people coming by to see the place. The context of the story was that wildlife rehab was a jungle because mm-hmm. none of the people who were in the business liked each other. Um, hmm. And they all had kind of checkered backgrounds. The, the, what got me started to writing the story is I found a couple in Palm Harbor who were doing wildlife rehab. He used to be a bank robber, and she used to be an exotic dancer. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. You know, I interviewed several of them. One one guy had actually got into a cursing match with Ralph Heath. Another one had locked one of his assistants in a cage with, with a puma. That one actually wound up in court. And one guy finally told me, he said, look, the reason we work with animals is because we can't stand people. So that that seemed, the <laughs> and that's not so hard to believe. I mean, yeah. these people are, you know, there's no money in this, really. No. You have to be no. incredibly dedicated. You're on call all the time. When we say animal rehab, largely we're talking about birds that have been hit by cars. To, to that's, all, really, that's a lot of it. Yeah. Or, or they got entangled up in fishing lines, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, yeah. But there are other, other animals that, that get brought in as well. And some of them actually wind up taking care of exotic animals, like we saw in Tiger King, where, you know, uh, Carol, Carol Baskin has mm-hmm. uh, all of these big cats. And then they take them out and and exhibit them. One guy told me that he had seven tigers, and he would take them, wow. say, to Leesburg to promote the opening of an office supply store, and he'd get an $800 fee for doing that. And that was a way to defray his expenses. You know, it's a 24-7 kind of job, too, where when somebody calls and says, you know, hey, I got a you know a possum here with a broken leg or mm-hmm. something like that, you you got to roll on it. And one guy said, that's why I've been married five times. When yeah. the phone rings, i got to go. What sort of licensing, if any, is required for the the owners and the caretakers that you're aware of? It's a lot tighter now than it used to be. I mean, you know, 1971 when Ralph he started the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary, there was virtually no licensing at all. Like, mm-hmm. You know, you basically you picked up an animal and he took care of it, and you were in the business. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, they are the ones who issue the licenses. They are supposed to go around and check on people, although they're not always they're not always able to, to do the kind of inspections they need to do because mm-hmm. they're quite frankly very short staffed because of the lack of funding. Ralph Heath ultimately, I don't want to give away too much of the story before we talk to Sarah, but he ultimately wound up running afoul of the Wildlife Commission and they hit him with some misdemeanor charges. And that was sort of at the end of lots of other things going wrong for Ralph and for the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary, which Sarah uh, knew from the, she knows that story from the inside. She actually worked there and then wrote this essay for Sunshine State based on her experiences uh, working at, at the uh, Senko Seabird Sanctuary. And it's, it's, you know, honestly, it's kind of heartbreaking to see what happened, both to Ralph, who started off with the best of intentions, and also for the wildlife he was supposed to be taken care of. Well, without further ado, let's welcome in Sarah Gerard. She is the author of 
Sunshine State, a series of essays about the state of Florida. She is a Florida native, reading from the New York Times Review. One of the themes of Sunshine State, Sarah Gerard's striking book of essays, is how Florida can unmoor you and make you reach for shoddy, off-the-shelf solutions to your psychic unease. The first essay is a knockout, a lurid red heart wrapped in barbed wire. This essay draws blood. Uh, Sarah, congratulations on your new novel, True Love, being published. I've seen nothing but really good reviews for it, so congrats on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a strange time to release a book, but I guess it's always surreal to release a book. True, true. Instead of talking to you about your novel, though, we wanted to talk to you about your time spent working at the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary and then the essay you wrote about it for Sunshine State, your acclaimed collection of, of essays. How did you wind up there? What, tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you wound up at the Seabird Sanctuary. Well, the Seabird Sanctuary is about 15 minutes from my parents' house. So I grew up just around the corner and went there all the time when I was a kid uh, with schools and with friends. And I had always just been fascinated by it. And I think in looking for ways to, how do I even say this, like penetrate Florida as a, as a very, you know, multi valent subject. Um, one of the things I wanted to look at was its ecology and its, its wildlife. So I thought, what better place to do that than a wildlife rehab center? <laughs> and then I just uh, volunteered there as a way to infiltrate. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of work well, did you do? What sort of volunteering? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, I was working all over the park. I mean, I was in the bird hospital for a while, just cleaning cages and feeding the birds. I was feeding baby birds with syringes. I was helping the staff when an, when an injured bird came in, um, you know, prepare its cage or, you know, do whatever they needed me to do at the time. But I was also folding laundry. I was repairing broken things, you know, fences, mm-hmm. a lot of grunt work. Did you, did you meet Ralph? What was he, What was he like when you first met him? I don't know if Ralph knew who I was right away. Um, I don't think he noticed me right away um, or really took note of me. The first time we had a real conversation was, I think, a couple weeks after I began working there. He, well, we we both went to like a, a a, I don't know if it's a concert, you would say, but it's a, somebody's band was playing at a bar on the beach, uh, Jimbo, who appears in the essay, Ralph's uh, long-term best friend. At the time, I'm not sure they're friends anymore, but he was his band was playing um, on the beach, and I had a feeling that Ralph would go, so I went. And sure enough, there he was, so I just sidled up next to him and sat down and began a friendly conversation. And I said, I'm volunteering at the Seabird Sanctuary, and I'm going to write about it, so what can you tell me? And he just told me everything. Um, he's a wow. very kind man. Yeah, actually, he's mm-hmm. a very, very kind man, I have to say. I, I really think Ralph's heart is in the right place. But there's there's something there was I, I shouldn't say is because this was 2016 that I was doing this research. But there was there was something else going on with him that was um, causing him to get in his own way and, and doing the right thing sometimes. Someone who would work with him and went off to start his own wildlife rehab place told me he thought the big problem with Ralph was he was about to turn 71. He said he's got to understand he can't do this anymore. He's too old. Do you yeah. think that was part of it, or was there more to it than that? I can tell you that. He seemed to be moving around just fine, so physically there was no impediment to him working. However, in talking to him, there were, how should I say, irregularities and eccentricities that I picked up on in our conversation and in the the way he was talking and what he was talking about that gave me the feeling 
that he might have different ideas about reality than I did. <laughs> but that's I that's a nice way to put it. That's yeah. a very nicely but nuanced I, way to put it. But again, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I, I can't, a diagnosis takes many interviews and, in you know, by a professional. I know that after I stopped volunteering there, you know, I, I was never able to verify in person that he, you know, it was my own two eyes that he was hoarding animals. But after I stopped volunteering there, I did see it in the news that, that that his warehouse had been raided, not for the first time. And, you know, and he did tell me himself that he had over 700 birds in this warehouse wow. and a few hundred more in his home, mm-hmm. which can you imagine living in a, I mean, his home was an average size, but not a mansion. You know, where do yeah. you keep 200 birds in that house? And the answer is in your bedroom, <laughs> among other places. Mm-hmm. So, and, you, and, and he wasn't letting the other staff members in there, right? No, no, no. Um, there were, not in his house. There, were, His friend was allowed in his house, Jimbo. Mm-hmm. And, and Jimbo told me that seeing his, the condition of Ralph's house for the first time made him very emotional. He was very upset by that because he was living in squalor. And then there was one staff member that Ralph employed personally, not by the sanctuary, but that was allowed in the warehouse. Last I checked in the news, that was still the case. There was just one person who was working for him personally who was allowed to go in there. And I think that's it. Other than people being employed by the state, Florida Fish and Wildlife, I don't think anybody else has gone in there. The pictures I saw from when they went in there, they they wore hazmat suits. Yeah. The level of bird poop. In there, and, uh, yeah. and it was it was pretty squalid. I right. have to say, when when I interviewed Ralph in 2016, we sat down and we did like a 90 minute interview. It was him, him, his attorney, and a city council member that that was friends had been friends of his since they were in grade school together. And at one point, he told me that the birds actually seek him out. He said he had been told by a Seminole chief that he has an aura like radar mm-hmm. bird sense, knowing that he's a friend mm-hmm. who can cure them. And he thinks he thought that they even would communicate with each other about him. And when he yeah. said that, his attorney said that if the paper printed that, they're going to come after you with a net. <laughs> and Ralph said, well, it happens to be true. As long as the birds love me and come to me for help, I don't care what other people say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he told me the same thing in an interview, that he had been told by a seminal chief, and he named the chief, and, and that he had an extra sensory ability to communicate with the birds. And again... I am not a mental health professional, and neither are you. I don't want to speculate about what is going on with him mentally. I mean, I think in my writing, my main concern was for the health of the birds. You know, it was not my aim to ridicule Ralph or or expose him or embarrass him or humiliate him in any way. And I and like I said at the beginning of our conversation here, I actually think that his heart is in the right place. He was very kind to me. And to his credit, unlike unlike a lot of the other wildlife rehab people I have talked to, he actually had a background for it. I mean, his his father was a right, surgeon, yeah. and he had learned how to sew up gashes and wounds and so forth. And he had actually earned a zoology degree. At its height, at we, we've talked a little bit about what it has become, and we can imagine those smells and those sounds and those sights. But at its peak, for, for folks like myself who have no knowledge of the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary, what was it? What was it like? What made it special? Oh, you know, it activates all of your six senses. There is really a sense of something supernatural happening there, and it Perhaps it's because of the the sounds of the birds or the way they move. They're so graceful and it's just really ethereal creatures. You know, you do have a sense of a connection with some of them. There are all kinds of ways of communicating non-verbally. 
And I do believe that animal intelligence is, is real and, and is smarter than we know. I would be there late at night sometimes. I would just go and sit there because at the time they would leave it open. Um, and that's not the case anymore because Ralph's sons have taken over the sanctuary and put in all the security. But at the time, you could just wander through in the middle of the night. And I would go and sit there, and there were so many birds in the trees that I couldn't see, and they were all making these sounds wow. and flapping around. And, I mean, they have some of the just most alien vocalizations that I've ever heard, some of them. And there are just thousands of them there at the sanctuary, and they're probably drawn there by the smells of other birds or the smells of fish. I mean, the place smelled very fishy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's very cool. I mean, it backs up right to the beach, and I was really lucky to witness at one time they were releasing a rehabilitative frigate bird, which is the hugest thing I've ever... It's just a huge bird. Its wingspan is, like, taller than I am. And it soared in a circle after they released it, you know, above us a couple of times mm -hmm. as if saying goodbye, and then it flew away. Wow. It was so cool. So there's just, you have these, you know, once-in-a-lifetime experiences at sure. that place. What were some, that of, really what were some other species that you guys worked with? Oh, God, all kinds. Um, there was a wood, there were wood storks, there were uh, night herons, there were white pelicans, brown pelicans, anhingas, cormorants, hawks, owls, vultures. Everything is there. They have everything, every kind of bird you can imagine. And people bring in injured birds all the time of different species. So you're kind of always seeing something new there. And it was really cool that I got to see birds in all stages of development, too. I was, like, hand-feeding baby woodpeckers, you know, and baby mm -hmm. blue jays. And it was a big tourist attraction, too. It was like 50,000 people a year going through there at, the, at its height. I mean, I think it still is a huge tourist attraction. Its reputation uh -huh. was hurting it for a while, but in the last couple of years, since I've been there, I think shortly after the Florida Fish and Wildlife raid of the warehouse that his son, that Ralph's um, sons intervened finally, uh, people mm -hmm. had been asking them to come in and, and take over the sanctuary for a while. But after that raid, I, I believe, is when his sons came in and took over and began to repair its reputation. They actually renamed it. It used to be the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary and what is it called now? I think it's Something Seaside. Seaside, Seaside Sanctuary. Seabird Sanctuary. Yeah. That's right. Which is great. I'm, I'm glad they mm -hmm. rebranded and, and something similar. So, you know, the name appeals to people who are familiar with the place already right. and also signals that there's something new happening there. You know, maybe this is a refresher. Yeah. I'm hopeful that the kids can, you know, fix what's wrong there since they're the heirs to the, uh, among the heirs to the uh, Bush family. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Yeah. Ralph's second wife was an heiress to the Anheuser-Busch fortune. His sons are, are also um, entrepreneurs. Yeah, they have a lot of business acumen, and it seems like they've done a lot of really good things for the place. Among them, I, I believe, now, they weren't. when I was volunteering there, they were not employing a veterinarian. To my utter shock and surprise, there was not a veterinarian on staff. So when something really serious needed to happen, they would have to bring in an outside veterinarian, or they would just guess at what they needed to do. It was very disturbing. There was a massive walkout a couple of years before I got there, two or three years before I got there, um, and among the people who walked out was the veterinarian. So, hmm. uh, yeah, that's yeah. going to be a problem. Now that's not the case. I mean, it seems like things are really sh have really shaped up there, and they've, they've cleaned it up, and they're real professionals on staff, which is great. Now, were you there when Ralph had his research vessel that was going out that proved to be no. very controversial? A uh, local TV station ran a story that claimed he was using his research ship yeah. for parties with naked women rather than protecting wildlife. <laughs> So. Yeah, that's true. And I read that too. Um, I, I read that, and I also I confirmed that with Jimbo um, in an interview. And yeah, there were uh, several unseemly things happening at the sanctuary. I also 
I didn't include this in the essay because it would have totally shifted the focus of the essay for reasons that are about to become clear to you. But he also was inviting teenage girls onto the sanctuary property in the 90s to be photographed for a kink website. <laughs> for a porn website. Ew. Yeah. They were, you know, yeah. So he got in trouble for that. That wasn't really a part of the story that I was writing, although it is a very mm-hmm. important part of Ralph's story and his, his, his dealings with younger women. Jimbo t- also told me that Ralph just prefers very young women. And the word prefers has a, you know, lots of italicized and underlined and bracketed in quotes. But, you know, again, I didn't bring that up with Ralph and mm-hmm. I'm not sure how he would respond to it. He he has had a, a very spotty past with women of all ages, including younger women. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned about him being a uh, potentially being a hoarder. Mm-hmm. Staff members told me that he never wanted to euthanize any injured animals, even when it was clear that that was the most humane mm-hmm. option. So mm-hmm. he, those he would he would take home as pets, and then if they died, he'd put them in his freezer. Oof. Oh, I didn't know that about the freezer. Yikes. How big is that freezer? Excuse me, know. but how big is that freezer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many birds he had in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, see, uh, and I hear myself laughing, and I, I just have to... You know, I just want to say, like, you know, people laugh when things make them very uncomfortable or very mm-hmm. sad, and we, we make jokes about things to sort of elide the moment, uh, you know, um, that's very sad, and I it doesn't surprise me either. How do I say this? I um, don't think Ralph wants to hurt animals. I don't. No, no. But... Um, but certain actions that he has taken have done that, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it has ever happened that Ralph has found a healthy bird that he then inadvertently injured somehow, mm-hmm. but there were moments in our conversations when I did wonder, and he gave me a description at one point, and I saw, as an aside, I saw other versions of this same scenario described by him in other venues, in interviews by other people. And here's a story he told me, just the outline. He was late at the sanctuary one night and um, Mm -hmm. encountered a blue heron. The heron approached him, and then he saw that the heron, and after the heron approached him, he saw that the heron had an injured leg. So then he took the heron into his house and laid it over his washer and dryer and repaired the leg himself. And I saw... Other, you know, I mean, in birds, what wild birds would come into the sanctuary all the time because there were fish there and other birds. Yeah. And yeah. There, were, there was tree, tree cover where they could roost and whatever. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he very well, I'm sure he did encounter this heron one night. You know, he very well may have encountered lots of birds in the sanctuary at night that were actually wild that he then took into the sanctuary, even though they weren't injured when he encountered them. This is one situation where I wonder if that happened because I saw other descriptions of that same scenario in in other publications where the heron was described as having an injury in some other location on its body. In one case, it was the wing, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could go into detail about the gory, you know, I could give you the gory details of the way he described it to me, but but suffice it to say, um, it was disturbing when I heard that because the injury that he described to me, as he described it to me, was quite serious. I wonder if the folks who, who are in the wildlife rehab business, if they build up this mythology in their minds about their place in dealing with animals and it becomes so powerful, it becomes like a sort of an overarching set of beliefs for them. That's sort of what you saw happening with the Tiger King thing where... Well, to get into uh, that line of work, don't you almost have to? I mean, this is far beyond just gainful employment. You know, this these, this is not people going to work and punching a time clock. I mean, yeah. these people live... 
I mean, it's a life. It's it's not like a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. It is a, it is yeah. a belief system. Ralph lived on the sanctuary property. He had been treating injured birds his whole life, beginning with his father, who was a doctor, who taught him how to do it. And, you know, I think it was in large part because of his father that he ended up majoring in zoology because they actually had a sanctuary at their house when he was growing up. I mean, he would take in injured animals and then because they couldn't be re-released, they would live on the property. They had a huge property in Tampa. So it's very much wrapped up in his identity and his whole life's purpose, his entire life's purpose. And he he did live on the sanctuary property, and his mother also died on the sanctuary property. Yeah, and, she, well, she you know, and her dad and his dad both worked there after they retired. In fact, yeah. I think she was there till she was 103, I think. Yeah, she. Mm-hmm. I think she was, at, I was told, yeah, 103 or 104. Mm-hmm. And she died yeah. right there in what used to be the sanctuary office and wow or it was right above the sanctuary office yeah so mm-hmm. so there's a lot of grief wrapped up in the place for him you know there's a mm-hmm. whole his entire identity is the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary or was that I'm not sure what he's doing today but was at the time when I was there the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary and obviously it was a really spiritual experience for him you know dimension of his life as evidenced by the story he told me and you about the um the seminal chief yeah. <laughs> you know basically yeah. endowing him with a magical power he also something that i was really interested in as i was writing this article was just how much he has fought for animal life over mm-hmm. many many decades he was at one time running a very lucrative business out of the sanctuary. He had a lot of money, and um, his wife also had a lot of money. The Bush heiress had a lot of money. Yeah. And he wanted to he wanted to buy up the properties and just keep them wild for, for wild birds. Mm. And, and his um, efforts were quashed over and over by city government. And so I think there's a lot of rage probably, you know, riding underneath the sanctuary's downfall because he fought, fought and lost a lot over the years. Yeah. He's probably very angry yeah. and probably has a lot of grief. Sadness. Well, it, it seems like the decline really kind of started around, I want to say, 2012. Mm-hmm. That's when they, they started missing payrolls. The electricity was cut off for non-payment. The IRS filed liens totaling $187,000 for unpaid payroll yeah. taxes. And then he wound but, up being charged with workers' compensation fraud. Well, yeah, he was stealing money from the sanctuary. And that's, yeah. you know, he was just, that's what was happening. He was just, he was extorting money from the sanctuary. And who knows? where that money was going, but my theory is that it was, it's being used to, or was, or is being used to um, feed the birds in the warehouse. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I bet you're right. I bet you're right. Yeah. Explain mm-hmm. this, the sanctuary and the warehouse. What is the difference there that you're talking about, two places? Oh, yeah. Okay, so there is an off-site secret warehouse full of birds. <laughs> and um, some turtles, too. There were turtles. And some turtles, there. another, yeah, who knows what else is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on Starkey Road. Ralph was living at the time, um, splitting his, he had two residences. One of them was the warehouse. Was a, It was a, a trailer on the warehouse property. And the other residence that he kept was at the Seabird Sanctuary, which is on, mm-hmm. on Indian shores, whereas the warehouse is a couple miles away. Um, and the warehouse is just that. It's just a huge, empty warehouse that's just full of birds and turtles. And um, he would spend a lot of time there. Yeah. And it wasn't really, my memory from seeing the pictures, it wasn't really set up to be a place for wildlife. It was just a no. warehouse, and he put they, them in there. And yeah, and, and they would just be stuck in there. The birds could never leave. They couldn't fly. They couldn't see the sun. They couldn't Ooh. hunt. They couldn't They couldn't make nests. They There was nothing in there but concrete and water. There was like a standing pool of stagnant water from what I've seen in the pictures. And first of all, turtle, I mean, all living things need the sun at some point. 
turtles especially, they need to sun because otherwise their shells get soft and they, they begin to, they warp and they can be very painful. And um, they found a lot of Florida Fish and Wildlife, when they raided the warehouse, found a number of deformed animals in there as a result of being kept inside for a long time and not, yeah. and not cared for properly. Well, and, and some of the birds were migratory birds. So yeah. they, they weren't supposed to be sticking around in Florida anyway. Very, very sad. I mean, there's nothing natural about a bird living inside all the time. <laughs> it's it's very sad. I mean, so yeah, it, obviously these animals were in a lot of physical and psychic pain, as was Ralph. And yeah. so there are all kinds of, maybe all kinds of connections you can draw there, what was happening yeah. as he externalized his, his inner anguish. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he told me at the end of our interview, he said, they say I'm crazy. Are the birds crazy for walking up to me? Hmm. Well, <laughs> that's a really you know, good kind question. of getting back into that mythology again. Yeah, it's yeah. a really good question that raises more questions. Um, yeah. Are the birds really walking up to you? Are they walking up to you because you're holding a fish? I mean, who knows? You know, like yeah. who knows why they're walking, or or just because they're you know a lot of the birds at the sanctuary actually would kind of. They, they were not afraid of people, not just the resident birds. That, that So there are birds that come in and stay there permanently mm-hmm. because their injuries are so severe that they cannot be re-released. They would die. There are other birds that are rehabilitated and, and released, and that's the ultimate, the, the real, what a wildlife rehabber really wants to release an animal back into the wild healthy. But other birds would come to the sanctuary because of they because they could get fed or they could breed or whatever. And those birds were also not afraid of people because they were there all the time. They, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, animals become accustomed um, to, to people. So it's possible that the birds were walking up to him, but they're, why that's happening is up for question. Have you been to any other wildlife rehab places? Yeah, I love the I love the bird sanctuary next to the, um, what's the aquarium called in Sarasota? Moat Marine? Yeah, the Moat Marine Aquarium. There's a really beautiful be- uh, bird sanctuary right next door, like on the same. They, mm-hmm. they share a parking lot. Oh, it's so great. I love it. Um, and the people there are, they have all kinds of, so many different kinds of birds, but it's, it looks very different from mm-hmm. the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary. And, and the people there are just like really dedicated. I, I was teaching at New College of Florida in 2018, 2019 as a writer in residence, and I brought one of my classes there. The class was called Voices from Outside, and it was a writing seminar. So we would read a lot and also write a lot. And one of the things that my students had to write about was an animal encounter. So we went to this bird sanctuary next to the Marine Aquarium. And they gave us this really lovely tour and told us the whole history of the place. And then we stayed there writing about different birds. I mean, that place is just very clean and the birds are well cared for and you can tell they're happy there. What's your favorite bird sanctuary? Gosh, well, I mean, I I don't know about bird sanctuary. I do enjoy going to Florida Aquarium and seeing their, uh, you know, they have an area with, they have an aviary that has netting in there. So the birds are outside, Mm -hmm. but they're feel kind of controlled. I also liked encountering bats in there, which was kind of cool. I've never gotten closer to a roseate spoonbill than I have the mm-hmm. Florida Aquarium. I was like oh, yeah. inches away from it. Yeah, I mean, and those birds will come up to you too. Those exactly. birds come up to you. I mean, all kinds of animals come up to you because animals are very playful. The otters at the Florida Aquarium will play with you. Dolphins like to play in the wake behind boats. I mean, animals mm-hmm. have a sense of play and, and just like humans, they're very social. So in, including birds. <laughs> but don't you find that there's a there's sort of this instinct among humans these days to feel like we're not looking at nature, we're looking at a nature show. 
uh-huh. and that mm-hmm. and that we need to, we are part of the nature show, and so we're you know we're like mm-hmm. the hosts of the show, and you know oh I'm going to pet this dolphin. Ow, it bit <laughs> me. I didn't know they would do that. You know yeah. um, uh, that yeah. you know that we we put ourselves in the frame rather than just hanging back and and enjoying seeing wildlife. I mean I can't count how many people have bragged to me about taking their hose and giving fresh water from the hose to a manatee at their dock. And it's like, don't do that because <laughs> mm-hmm. that gets them used to hanging around the dock where the boats are. But we well, just feel like, I mean, oh, I need to be part of the part of the scene. I need to insert myself mm-hmm. into it. Like the people yeah, feeding key deer down in the Keys. Something that's very sad about civilization, I guess I should say, is that we, we ha- we've been separated from nature. We rise with our alarm clock, not the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. And, Good point. and all kinds of natural processes are interrupted because of our separation from nature. So I think we are really drawn to animals because we want we want that reconnect. We, we want to feel that connection again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's something really elemental about how we understand each other. I've gone on manatee encounter boat tours in Homosassa a number of times and I love it. It's so amazing. And, and mm-hmm. I, and I know it's bad. And, you know, I, I know that it's not good for the manatees, but I also just can't even, there's no other feeling than coming face to face with a manatee. It's so much bigger than you think it is. It's massive. Yeah. It's, it moves so much faster than you think it's gonna, <laughs> it's just huge, you know? Yeah. And, they, and I mean, yeah, it's like who just, dropped this big couch in the water? I know, <laughs> they really huge. are. It's like bigger than a refrigerator. They're huge. Yes. I, I can never replace those experiences. Meanwhile, knowing that it's destroying the grasses, that, that, that the boat tour has destroyed the grasses that the manatees need to live, that they feed on and, and need to live. So I don't know what the answer is because I, I think that, you know, especially children in, in our contemporary life get outside less than they ever have. A really important part of my own childhood in Florida was just spending all day outside looking at nature. I was playing with bugs. I was catching lizards. I was chasing birds. I was climbing trees and finding the cicada uh, shedding. You know, they're, when they shed, I was getting stung by bees. I was finding a nest of baby birds in the tree next door. I mean, these these are really, really important experiences that that gave me a, a sense of a spiritual life and a connection to the, the whole world that I think is really hard to come by if you're a child today and you spend a lot of time in front of a screen. Now, were yeah. you one of those kids who would attach the lizards to your ears like they were earrings? Oh, f- yeah. Did I grow up in Florida? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. What is this now? This I've not heard of before. Oh, lizards, when they're, when they're like, when you catch them and they're upset, they just like open their mouths. Uh It's almost like there's a silent scream coming out of the lizard. And when they do that, you put your earlobe inside its mouth and they clamp down and they become earrings. And it hurts, but it's awesome. It looks great. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to. And then the difficulty is getting them off again. <laughs> how do you? Yeah, I was going to ask you how long would they hang on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't even remember what the. I probably had a method for taking them off, but I can't remember now how to do that without hurting the lizard. <laughs> she is Sarah Gerard. You can find numerous of her titles on Amazon.com. Binary Star. We've been talking largely about Sunshine State essays. Her new novel is called True Love. Check them all out on Amazon.com. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Chad and Craig. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks for being with us. I enjoyed it. Are you a birder at all, Craig? Uh, you know, my mom is a, is what we like to call a backyard birder. She, I grew up in a house where my mom was constantly grabbing her binoculars mm-hmm. or just looking outside to see, oh, 
you know, she had, she had set up a little watering station. Mm-hmm. And so the cardinals would come in, blue jays, mockingbirds, you know, all that yeah. stuff. And if there was anything out of the out of the ordinary, she definitely flagged that down. And yeah. then we had to watch, you know, like it was appointment TV. We had to watch National Geographic oh, specials yeah. when they came on and the Jacques Cousteau specials when they came on. Any Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. I remember yes. that one yes. from my childhood. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and now, on the other hand, my dad was in a development-related business. He's a land surveyor. Really? So I kind of grew up hearing that constant Florida conversation of, you know, on the one hand, we need something to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, isn't isn't nature beautiful? Kind of gave me a good a good viewpoint for both. Yeah, I've been a, I guess, relatively serious birder for about 10 years, got into it uh, when I lived in Georgia and now enjoy going out from time to time in northeast Florida, which is great for birding. And Florida is the best state in the continental United States for birding. Hundreds of species because we're on the Atlantic Flyway. You Uh have the uh, subtropical species in South Florida. You have all the warblers that come through North Florida. If you're interested in finding out more, search Great Florida Birding Trail. Yes, that's a great that's a great trail. Yeah, yeah, all over the state, it's divided up by regions. Some of these places are city parks; others are, you know, the Everglades and national wildlife refuges and things of that nature. The Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, Sanibel Captiva, Sanibel. one yeah. of the absolute best places in the world to go birding, as is the uh, Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary down in that area. But I've I've always said this about birding, and I firmly believe it: you can do better birding from the side of the road in Florida than you can in most states. And I think one of the reasons I was so attracted to Florida from such an early age, and I said this on our very first introductory preview episode, it's like living in a zoo. And yeah. whether it's... In more ways than one. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's but I have, the, to, I have to tell you, the, one of the coolest nature experiences I ever had was a bird-related experience. I was doing a story about fish-eating creek over by Lake Okeechobee mm-hmm. and how the Likes Brothers were turning some of that property over to the state for preservation. And so the Likes Brothers caretaker was driving me around the place, and we drove up on the road that's on top of the levee that goes around the, uh, or the dam, I guess, that goes around uh, Lake Okeechobee. Mm -hmm. And we were there about 7 o'clock in the morning, and he he pointed ahead at some Australian pines that had been planted along that rise. And as we were, you know, the sun had come up, it was just starting to get warm. Suddenly these birds began taking off from the trees. They were swallowtail kites that were migratory. Mm Mm-hmm. And there were thousands of them, and I, I would say probably maybe half the entire population of swallowtail kites wow. in the world were all in these trees, and they started taking off, you know, two or three at a time, and then it was hundreds, and they would ascend, and then they would circle around catching the, the thermals, yeah. and then soar up beyond where we could see them anymore. It was incredible, and the uh, photographer uh, with me was going nuts because he couldn't get all of them in the yeah. frame. An extraordinarily, uh, an extraordinarily elegant bird, the swallowtail kite. And there are a number of endemic birds to Florida, as you might imagine. The Florida scrub jay is one that I'm sure we'll talk about in, in future episodes. There are a lot of imperiled uh, sparrow species, the red-cocated woodpecker and the pine woods in the panhandle. Uh, in that area, the snail kite is another one in the okay. middle of the state, uh, a very interesting birds. Here's two bird facts that we can end on. Florida has more bald eagles than any state in the continental U.S. Alaska, of course, has the most, but Florida is number two for bald eagles. And if you ever see a hummingbird in Florida, it is a ruby-throated hummingbird. That is the only eastern 
hummingbird species. They are hard to get in your glasses or, or hard to get with a camera phone or a, a regular camera. But it's if you see a hummingbird in Florida, it is a ruby-throated hummingbird. I did not know that. You taught me something. Uh, Thanks, Chad. Welcome to Florida.